I'm Jason Mitchell, sustainability strategist for Man Group. You're listening to Perspectives Towards a Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. Bitcoin, Ethereum, Ripple, bring up those names or just the topic of cryptocurrencies and you're likely to invite a firestorm of opinions. Are these the digital currencies of the future? Or are they just another acid bubble, kind of like the 17th century Dutch tulip mania? But I'm not interested in exploring the underlying asset value of Bitcoin. What I'm more interested in is exploring the social value of cryptocurrencies. It's something a number of economists, including Nobel laureates like Joseph Stieglitz and Paul Krugman, and most recently Bill Gates, have all started to question. It's a debate that has long been overshadowed by the use of Bitcoin to fund illicit activities like drugs and even murder for hire on the dark web. So what are the positive arguments for their social value? Can cryptocurrencies actually drive greater financial inclusion in the long term? How can developing countries use the underlying blockchain technology of cryptocurrencies to accelerate the modernization and digitization of government functions or banking systems and their integration into global trade? To answer these questions, I decided to sit down and have a chat with Professor Cam Harvey. He's one of the leading academics studying cryptocurrencies. Cam is Professor of Finance at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business. He's a research associate of the U.S. National Bureau of Economic Research and a strategic advisor for Man Group. He's also one of the few academics who recognized early on the significance of cryptocurrencies and blockchain. And over the past four years, he's taught courses on innovation and crypto ventures at Duke that focus on the mechanics and applications of blockchain technology. Welcome to the show, Cam. It's great to have you here. Great to be on the show. <laughs> Perfect. Look, to start out, could you give us a bit of background about yourself, your field of study within finance, and what really attracted you to cryptocurrencies? So my background is in investment management, asset management, and some corporate finance. And I got interested in cryptocurrency in a very interesting way. I had a seven-year hiatus from teaching while I was the editor of the Journal of Finance. And when I went back uh, to my asset management course, I decided to completely revise it and not use the same notes that I'd used seven years ago. And one of the segments was on foreign exchange. And we do the standard things, the dollar, the euro, the pound. Um, But I thought, let's add something different. And what about adding cryptocurrency? So I went about to try to put this lecture together on cryptocurrency and quickly realized that this was not what I expected. I'd heard all these negative things about cryptocurrencies, it being associated with uh, the, the crime world and, and things like that. But when I started reading about it, it was super rigorous and, and, very, uh, and very provocative uh, intellectually. So I went down the rabbit hole and quickly realized that this single lecture was taking more time to prepare than the sum of all of my other lectures. (laughs) And then uh, I got to the day uh, of my my lecture. I was very nervous because some of the concepts are are quite complex Mm -hmm. and require uh, a background in cryptography and computer science, uh, elliptic curve mathematics, stuff that uh, is not really (laughs) on my resume. And I delivered 
uh, this lecture and the students uh, were really struck by it. And they said, Professor Harvey, this shouldn't be a lecture. This should be a whole course. And uh, indeed, I just finished teaching the course for the fourth year. And uh, at Duke, um, it turns out that more than half of the graduating class enrolled in my course. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. That's an lo- incredible interest. Um, I guess that's what makes it so interesting, because I look back at, at what's been written over the last five to seven years, and you can really see the evolution of, of cryptocurrencies. In fact, I found an article uh, that you'd contributed to in The Guardian around 2014. And, you know, again, sort of this, this backstory about crime, illegal issues had surfaced in this story. And, and it's one of the points that I really wanted to start with, which is, it feels like there are two strains of criticism uh, when, you, when, when people look at cryptocurrencies. Um, you find the uh, economic sort of monetary issues, the uh, uh, Mark Carney's at the Bank of England, um, or Warren Buffett. Um, and the Warren Buffett criticism, I mean, it's fairly obvious he tends not to get involved with things he doesn't understand, like derivatives. But then you find this interesting other strain that is more kind of critical at a social societal level. You had Joseph Stieglitz assert that there's no social value to cryptocurrencies. And, and for a second, because I'd love to get you to talk about this, but uh, a week ago, Bill Gates on Reddit, on a Ask Me Anything forum, had said this statement, um, and I'm going to read it. It's just uh, two or three lines. The main feature of cryptocurrencies is their anonymity. I don't think this is a good thing. The government's ability to find money laundering and tax evasion and terrorist funding is a good thing. Right now, cryptocurrencies are used for buying fentanyl and other drugs, so it is a rare technology that has caused deaths in a fairly direct way. Sure, that's like four questions in one, so <laughs> let, me, let me address them. The first thing, let me clarify one very important point uh, for the listeners, uh, that I teach a course on blockchain technology, and one application of blockchain technology is cryptocurrency. And it's actually not a large part of my mm-hmm. course. So the upside uh, of this idea is blockchain technology. So that's the first thing. And people sometimes make the mistake of just talking about cryptocurrency. So number two point, um, I wish that these Nobel laureates, Stiglitz, Krugman, would actually do the exercise that I did and actually go to the research uh, articles, the articles that have been peer-reviewed, that appear in academic journals, uh, indeed the same types of journals where they did their seminal work, where they were awarded Nobel Prizes, and actually do their background and do their due diligence before making these statements that really embarrass themselves. Krugman called Bitcoin evil. Um, And then you get uh, other people, and and Bill Gates actually has been positive uh, in the past uh, on Bitcoin, but I'm not convinced that he's done his research also. So uh, to say that uh, something that has the potential to reduce transactions costs dramatically. So you swipe a credit card, it's 3%. When you get a loan, part of the rate that you're paying is for the back office at the bank, the classic middle person. So this idea, if you could reduce those transaction costs to a very low level, um, if you could take out a lot of the middle people, 
then uh, that's totally the opposite. It has huge social value. And people like uh, the former uh, Fed chair Ben Bernanke totally get this. Anything that reduces transactions costs is a good thing socially for the economy. And the fourth part um, is the association with crime. And yes, it is true that uh, Bitcoin came into higher profile because it was the currency of choice on this dark website uh, called Silk Road. And uh, Silk Road, of course, was famously closed down. And the Bitcoin that they had uh, were seized and, and auctioned off. Um, but it turns out that the people that were using... Uh, Bitcoin for drug transactions or any illegal transactions, they, like Stiglitz and Krugman, didn't do their due diligence. They didn't really understand the technology themselves. And let me tell you right now that Bitcoin is probably the worst technology to use for crime mm. because every single transaction is publicly available in the Bitcoin blockchain. And eventually, we can probabilistically, as soon as you start to spend uh, the Bitcoin, we can figure out who you are. So this is not anonymous. It's limited. If you set up an address and somebody sends you a Bitcoin, that is anonymous. But as soon as you try to spend it, then we can figure out who you are. So it is a, a false statement um, that Bill Gates is making and other people have made. And indeed, uh, it is uh, also uh, the case that criminals have eventually figured this out and are looking to different uh, sorts of technology. If you want to do something anonymously, you use cash. Cash is anonymous. You don't use a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin or Ethereum. Now, thank you for that. Yeah, it's just it's incredibly curious to me that the the Silk Road uh, dark web shadow is so long and unfortunately uh, obscures a lot of the really interesting developments, particularly like you said on the blockchain side. I had uh, most recently met a fair trade organization that is using. Uh, blockchain to certify uh, the sort of the passage of uh, uh, commodities, fruits across uh, Africa uh, from you know far farm to port. Um, so you find these sort of really interesting, you know, legitimate applications. Yeah. So one of the obvious applications of blockchain is supply chain, and the amount of corruption the, that happens in a lot of the supply chains. Basically, who pays the price? It is the, the person that is the furthest um, upstream, the farmer, or uh, they get a fraction of what they should get because all of these middle people, the diversion, the corruption. So if you could have every single transaction documented in a blockchain ledger, which is distributed, it's immutable, you can't change it, and people can check it. And you know where everything goes. It's very clear. And indeed, this is another sort of dimension of the social possibilities here. Um, one of my students did this uh, very interesting project that's, that's related to what you just mentioned. And they proposed um, a blockchain-based uh, uh, ledger for uh, Manuka honey, mm. which is this rare, very expensive honey. And it turns out that um, seven out of eight pounds of that honey that's sold is fake. Oh, wow. 
Wow. So it's a huge amount uh, that's sold that's just plain honey, but they charge you know fifty times uh, the price. And and again, uh, who's the loser here? It is the, the the people that are actually out in the field in New Zealand uh, try to um, raise this uh, this good. So it's a common application, and again, uh, a socially responsible application. How, how fast do you find developing countries starting to adopt these technologies? Because I mean, that was the thing that I was a little bit surprised about with that Bill Gates comment. I mean, the Gates Foundation has actually done a lot in terms of uh, of grants around Sub-Saharan Africa. I know specifically with the M-Pesa. Uh, uh, mobile phone banking application. So this would have seemed like kind of a, a natural technology to overlay it with. Well, I don't know what the Gates Foundation is, is thinking. Uh, in my course, my students are required to um, produce a new idea. And I've already talked about one, the, the Honey uh, blockchain ledger. But a number of my uh, student groups were literally pitching uh, the Gates Foundation, and the applications here are, are just vast. One of the projects was on vaccines. Mm. And fake vaccines are just a huge problem. Mm-hmm. And, and, and who knows how many people die every year because uh, somebody substitutes a fake for the real vaccine. And again, this blockchain technology is ideally suited. You put in every vial, inside the vial, a code. The vial is delivered. And then that code is checked in this blockchain ledger. If the code appears in the ledger, it is a true vaccine. If it isn't, it's probably fake. Mm -hmm. So you talk about, uh, Gates is talking about um, this technology causing the loss of life. No, no, no. It is totally the opposite. Think about the applications. We tend to, the default example tends to be sort of a proto-state. You know, if you had to organize a state and create a banking system with the least amount of friction, uh, you would look at something like a, a, a uh, blockchain. Um, if you were to look at an oppressive regime, uh, maybe a dollarized economy like uh, Zimbabwe or Venezuela, this seems absolutely ideal. But when you think about uh, some of the challenges in implementing it in a developed economy where there are so many different points of friction um, and embedded, but basically tolls by the finance companies, how do you think about how that sort of plays out. Yeah, so a few years ago, people were thinking that these cryptocurrencies would be ideal in countries where there are problems. So you mentioned uh, Zimbabwe, where they had to, at some point, issue a $100 trillion note that had the value of like 50 cents uh, at the time. And Venezuela is in the news today, is out of control. Uh, indeed, they've, <laughs> they've actually advocated their own cryptocurrency that's somehow uh, linked to the price of oil, and most people have laughed it off. Uh, so originally people were thinking this could be a good thing for uh, some developing countries that are in tough spot because you can't trust their, their central bank. But I think that today people are more focused on developed countries. So every major developed country's central bank has got a team working on blockchain-based technology. The idea, the idea is very simple, that it doesn't make any sense in the future that we will use paper cash. It will be a relic of the past. That is not hard to forecast. Mm. 
So it's not hard to forecast at all. It is the same thing as what we've seen uh, with newspapers or books. It doesn't make any sense. So you have to go digital. And the idea of digital currencies have been around a long time, since the uh, early 1980s. Every single effort has failed. Mm. And, and basically, the reason for failure is so intuitive that with the digital currency, just like a, a digital picture or a digital book or a video, you can make a perfect copy, mm. right? absolutely perfect copy. So. You can't just have a digital currency. You need to connect that with a ledger. And blockchain technology provides that ledger. So it would be very similar to the sort of ledgers that we see with Bitcoin or uh, Ethereum, except it is not a public ledger, but a private ledger that's controlled by the central bank. So the central bank gets all of the tools that it's got available today in terms of money supply, targets, um, basically everything that they could do uh, today, they could do with a, uh, a blockchain-based uh, cryptocurrency, but they could do it a lot faster. So that you can implement things. I'll give you a couple of examples. And, and I've talked in, um, in uh, an op-ed in the Washington Post on FedCoin in the US. Mm-hmm that not only can you uh, control supply, but you could implement, if you're in uh, a situation where you need some sort of monetary stimulus, with one line of code, Mm. you drop $500 into everybody's wallet. Another thing is Mm. if if a a country needs a a negative interest rate, that's real real difficult to implement. Because why uh, would you invest in something with, let's say, a negative 2% interest when you could just hold the paper currency and get 0%. So you can't really implement this. So with this technology, uh, it's kind of the dream of the macro economist and the macro uh, sort of policymaker. And it is just a matter of time. There, in in my opinion, um, it's simply a matter of... um, a few years for, for some countries. Sweden, probably the first one, because only 2% of their transactions use um, currency, like cash currency, paper currency. So we're not that far away from this being implemented. It would seem to be ideally suited for something like uh, at the multilateral level. I'm thinking special drawing rights, SDRs, right? Um, yeah, so there's an issue of how this is implemented. So if you've got your own cryptocurrency, so Fed coin or Sterling coin or something like that, um, then your central bank has control. So you have control over essentially the inflation mm-hmm. uh, in mm-hmm. the country. But if you adopt a, a world coin, so maybe it's an IMF coin or World Bank coin uh, or Bitcoin, which is also a world uh, currency, then you lose all control of your monetary policy. It is the same thing that countries in the Eurozone, the same lesson um, that they've learned the hard way. So countries like Italy and Spain and Portugal and Greece, uh, oh, well, the Euro seemed like a great idea until you really needed control of your own monetary policy Mm -hmm. and there was no control. 
So I think that it's more likely that we see these cryptocurrencies uh, adopted on a country-specific basis. There will always be the world currencies and like Bitcoin and and gold. Uh, you know, there's crypto for gold yes, also. Yes. yes. E gold, right? It, RMG. RMG. Okay. Yeah, named okay. after the Royal Mint Group. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going back to cryptocurrencies and, and how governments are recognizing them and sort of the current misalignment. And I'm trying to f- understand the important milestones that you see. And one of them, I think, was uh, happened about a week ago, and this is the German Ministry of Finance uh, recognized cryptocurrencies uh, as a currency. Um, that was not taxable as long as it was used to uh, pay for something, as opposed to something like the United States, where the IRS um, sees it as property, which uh, is subject to capital gains. Um, I mean, that seems like a fundamental misalignment in terms of how you define these. Yeah, and I think that this is just what I expect, that we are very early in this process, and the laws have not been written for cryptocurrency. So if you look at the, the famous laws in the U.S. or in the U.K., there's no mention of a cryptocurrency. This is a new idea. It's an innovation. So there'll be a while before we work uh, this out. And, and certainly it makes sense if you're using something for a transaction that you shouldn't have to um, pay for the good, then pay some, some tax on top of that, and then figure out what your capital gain is. Mm. But on the other hand, if you're a trader and you're going back and forth, and I don't care if you're trading the dollar, the yen, the euro, the pound, um, the, the profits that you make on that, those are fully taxable. So you have to differentiate the way that you're actually using it. And for small transactions, it probably doesn't make any sense. But all of this will be worked out. And it's going to, it's going to be worked out because the central banks have already realized that this is the way that they have to go. Hmm. And they've also realized that it's ideal. One advantage of a, a national crypto that I didn't mention is that if you've got cash uh, paper currency, it encourages people to evade taxes. So you pay somebody in cash, you avoid uh, the value-added tax. So if everything is crypto, then there's no way to avoid uh, a value-added tax. So there's many positive reasons that governments are now warming up. Yeah, at the beginning, there was some negative PR with uh, Silk Road and, and certain criminals uh, and cryptocurrencies. But I think the governments are realizing, oh, we can, we can use that idea. That's a great idea. <laughs> the, uh, that's actually an interesting segue to the next question, which is you know, this idea of, uh, of cyber utopianism. You know, uh, during the early days of the uh, Internet, it was, you know, there was this belief that it was about uh, enhanced sharing, communities, uh, uh, this sort of collectivism um, that was positive. Uh, or a positive sum. Um, the reality is, when you look now, there's uh, you, we find fake news. We saw we see uh, a lot more polarization, smaller communities instead of wider communities. When you look at the robustness of Bitcoin um, technologically, it seems like I mean there are a lot of incredible advantages uh, in terms of personal privacy. But if you flip that coin, and you know and 
imagined maybe some of the dystopian possibilities in authoritarian governments, for instance. Um, what could go wrong? There's lots of things that could go wrong in the future, but there's lots of things that could go right. So it's, it's never like 100% uh, of the things that will happen are, are ideal. There are plenty of risks that we face in the future. Uh, technology itself poses a risk. So to be negative on cryptocurrencies because of some dystopian vision, that, that's just not good enough for me. That uh, you need to also list all of the positive things. I, I see the Internet in, in three different stages. So, and, and many people have compared to what's happening in blockchain technology today to 1992, 1993 uh, in the Internet. So originally the, the Internet was for just gathering information. So you go to the NewYorkTimes.com and you essentially pull that information, or Wikipedia, pull that information. We're living in the second wave, which is social media. So now you're able to be connected with far more people than was physically possible uh, in the past, and new communities arise. There's a third wave that hasn't happened yet that I believe will happen, and it is uh, having to do with payments. So right now, um, it's very clunky to pay for anything on the Internet. So you put your credit card in, which they charge at least 3% for, and many people don't have credit cards. Many people don't have bank accounts. There are 2.5 billion people that are unbanked uh, today. So, so they're not able uh, to do any uh, sort of business on the Internet. You can't do anything small because they'll laugh at you for a 50% um, sort of charge uh, on a credit card. And importantly, you can't get paid for doing anything on the Internet. Unless you set up a credit card facility, and I doubt uh, people would uh, go through the expense of, of maintaining that. So what blockchain technology and cryptocurrencies allow is the monetization of the stuff that you own, that other people are trying to figure out. So Facebook and Google right now, they are learning about you by your search behavior, the sort of stuff that you're reading, and then they sell that information to uh, ad agencies, and stuff is pushed. Okay, so they are taking your information and selling it, and you get nothing, they get everything. So Google AdWords is a great example here. You search for a lawyer in Dallas for a, a truck accident, and you hit the lawyer um, that is the number one hit in Google, then that lawyer pays Google $500. That $500 should go in your pocket. So this technology is, is basically uh, allowing uh, consumers to take back what they rightfully own. It allows the people that are unbanked in the world to become part of the modern digital world. So this is something that is very important, and it's a totally different vision than the dystopian vision. Yes, there are some costs that with blockchain ledger, you see um, what you're buying. Uh, you see all of the transactions, uh, and, and that's immutable. So, yes, that, that is a downside, but um, I think that you have to weigh that against the upsides. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's uh, uh, financial inclusion. When I think about the social value of, of cryptocurrencies and, and blockchain, 
financial inclusion is so important. Like you said, the unbanked or people that uh, aren't able to get a small amount of financing because of their credit scores or because of something else. Uh, um, It it seems like a huge opportunity. But, you know, I I guess as these networks are built out um, and and inclusive finance expands, uh, I keep thinking, where are outside of sort of the core blockchain. I mean, where are the potential toll booths? Where did these possible toll booths end up sitting? So, yeah, it makes sense. And so essentially what's happening, the way I kind of view this and what I've said uh, maybe uh, too vaguely, is that we're moving to closer to a peer-to-peer sort of world. Um, And in the past, uh, it's been very difficult to connect people. So you need a middle person to do that. So uh, I need a loan. Well, I could knock on a bunch of doors uh, and say, hey, well, you lend me um, $1,000. That's going to be really inefficient. So all of a sudden, a bank uh, pops up. And, And that's expensive, right? So there's real estate. There's a building, there's the maintenance of it, there's all the labor, the computers. It's just a huge cost that goes into that uh, bank. And then the bank uh, basically serves as the middle person and and essentially drawing um, uh, people together. So that is a legacy model that is being replaced uh, as we speak. So we've seen um, new middle people come in. And these new people essentially enable peer-to-peer uh, lending and borrowing. And the advantage is that the rate that you get um, is a lot cheaper uh, than if you went to a bank. And then if I'm an investor, I get a better return on uh, the money that I loan out than, than the bank. So it's win-win, but we see a new middle person that's administering this and taking a fee that is much lower than the bank. In my opinion, that new middle person um, will be disrupted again. Mm. So with this technology, what we're going to see uh, are the equivalent of, uh, some people call them um, uh, distributed or decentralized um, autonomous uh, organizations. So they will be computer programs. And you apply to the computer program, and there's another computer program that runs a credit check. And then your risk is established, and essentially uh, people will see that in uh, kind of a digital marketplace, and a loan will be made. And almost completely taking out the traditional legacy functions. This is a really uh, big deal, and it allows for a different type of banking and a more inclusive type of banking. So it's not just that some person doesn't have the right credit score, Mm -hmm. that it might be somebody in a developing market that really needs $50 uh, to get their business going. And you just can't go to a bank for that. You can't go to a bank in the U.S. for that, and then potentially where they are, there isn't a bank for hundreds of miles. So so I think um, the tolls that you're talking about, um, some of them are short-term. Mm-hmm. That they pop up, there'll be these new middle people that will be disrupted. And in the end, we've got a system that is way more efficient. It's good for, for everybody. 
everybody benefits except for the middle people. And they're going to have to find something else to do. Got it. Look, let's finish up with the uh, economics of, of, of mining uh, Bitcoin uh, question, uh, because we've just seen, I think in, in early January, uh, China announced it was closing uh, mining of, of Bitcoin. And you've seen a lot of migration to uh, weather advantaged areas, climate advantaged areas, uh, uh, energy sources like geothermal. Um, how do you see this evolving? Yeah, sure. So China has got a problem with Bitcoin, and it's, it's very simple. And that is that there's severe regulations on taking money out of China. So there's a cap of $50,000 a year. And the people in China rightfully are looking to hedge. So it's the same as the people in Venezuela. Uh, they want to hedge by having money in U.S. dollars. So if you're in China, you've got uh, a system that is potentially very fragile in the future politically. So you want to hedge, you want to get some money out of China. And Bitcoin, Ethereum, other cryptocurrencies, it's an ideal way to transfer very cheaply uh, your money out and evade uh, the regulations. That's the story uh, in China. So the other issue is the energy use in Bitcoin, which is very substantial. If the Bitcoin mining complex was a country, uh, the energy use would rank uh, number 61 in the world. So how should we think about that? So the energy that's being used is driving uh, an array of computing resources that is the most powerful uh, computing array in, in the world by far. So it's the equivalent of 100,000 supercomputers when you add it all together. So that uh, serves a purpose, and the purpose is that it makes the Bitcoin blockchain incredibly secure. It makes it unthinkable for somebody to go back in time and change a transaction. So effectively, everything is set in stone. So even a government uh, maybe nefariously amasses uh, the mining power to take 51% of the network, that would be an extraordinary achievement uh, to do that. It would cost billions of dollars, and you would have to produce specialized chips uh, secretly, but nobody would know about it. So it just seems completely infeasible. Even if you did that, you could maybe disrupt some current transaction. You couldn't go back in time and, and change history. So that mining power is very important for the security of, um, of this particular cryptocurrency. I will say that it's probably a good thing that a lot of the mining's moved out of China because the last thing we want is coal-based power uh, used to fuel um, the, the computers and the Bitcoin mining. And you see the sort of mining that's uh, rising is in areas that uh, have excess hydroelectric power. So in my country, uh, Canada, uh, northern Quebec has an amazing surplus of hydroelectric power that is not allowed into the U.S. So it is wasted. And why not use it uh, for, for mining? And Iceland is a great example also. They've got essentially unlimited geothermal clean power. And I kind of see that the mining will gravitate to the very cheapest places uh, for power that's the most environmentally uh, you know, secure. Now let me say one more thing. 
the mining and all of the energy, that applies to Bitcoin. So it's got a particular protocol where you have to solve a computationally difficult uh, problem. And you need a lot of comp computational power to actually do that. So other cryptos have different strategies. So Ethereum, the second largest one, uh, right now does have mining. It's a different type of mining. It's not as energy intensive. But they are planning to move to a different sort of protocol um, that's called proof of stake, where it's vastly uh, less intensive on energy. And other cryptos have uh, similar things. So, so don't confuse this incredible amount of energy production with all cryptocurrencies. Uh, it's definitely not necessary. Or, or don't confuse that if some country's central bank goes to a national cryptocurrency, that they have to devote a huge amount of power to, to do so-called mining, that's just false. That's not the way it's going to work. Um, it will be a permission, private, central bank blockchain that will need very little power uh, to generate it. Got it. Look, perfect. This has been fascinating to hear about some of the challenges that cryptocurrencies face, but more importantly, the social value that they and blockchain potentially represents, particularly in addressing financial inclusion. So I'd like to thank you for your time and views, Cam. This has been fantastic. It's been a lesson for me. <laughs> yeah, it's great to be on the show. I'm Jason Mitchell, sustainability strategist at Man Group, here today with Cam Harvey, professor of finance at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business. He's also investment strategy advisor at Man Group. Many thanks for joining us on Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. Thanks. You're listening to Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. I'm Jason Mitchell, sustainability strategist at Man Group. Thanks for joining us, and special thanks to everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash responsible dash investment or look for us on iTunes. <laughs>